0: Welcome to CB Talks, a podcast from SilverCloud Health, the leading global provider of evidence-based well-being and behavioral health solutions. I'm Dr. Jorge Palacios, and in each episode in this series, I sit down with leading mental health practitioners and advocates to explore the science of digital mental health. My guest today is Sir Carrie Cooper, Professor of Organizational Psychology at Alliance Manchester Business School. Carrie has been at the leading edge of research into employee well being for many years and has provided his expertise for organizations around the world in highlighting the relationship between mental health and productivity in the workplace. I'm very excited to welcome him to the podcast today. Thank
1: you, Carrie, so much for. For coming on, I know you're super busy. It's just a pleasure to be able to chat to you about this. This the subject of workplace well-being, well-being in general, especially these days is, I think, is um, at the top of a lot of people's minds and lips, right? Um, so just just thanks for having having this chat with us.
2: No problem. Look forward to it.
1: Great. So. Uh, Look, I I know you've probably been asked everything in your career, and um, you know I'm not I know I'm going to ask a lot of the questions you're used to getting, but um, but I am just really interested in in how you got started um, in general down this career of becoming this world leading expert on workplace well being, because obviously now yes fine it's it's top of the agenda for a lot of people, but I don't know about twenty thirty years ago or when you started. Just how did that come about for you? How did you slowly, you know, come down this road of, of becoming this expert in this, in this particular area?
2: Well, I, for me, Jorge, it started early. It started when I was a student at um, UCLA, University of California, Los Angeles, and I had to work. I came from a working class background and one of the jobs I had ch- transformed my life, which is I was doing um, an MBA at UCLA Mm-hmm. And I needed a job to pay for the fees and living and all the rest of it. And I took a job as a social worker in the city of Los Angeles, in the black community of Los Angeles called Watts. There were a lot, you've probably heard of it. There were Watts riots and really mm-hmm. deprived part of LA. And as a social worker, I saw so much that transformed my life because there I was doing an MBA and thinking I was going to go into law school and become a lawyer and somehow I saw such deprivation and so many problems. I thought to myself, "I got, I can't do that." And then at the same time, I was taking psychology courses. Mm. So I finished my MBA, and my professor, who was kind of my mentor, said to me, "You know, you need to develop yourself internationally. You, you don't, want, you know, you've been in LA. You went to UCLA. Uh, change your, find out, go travel." Right. So I went to England. And then when I was there working at Leeds University, they offered me to do a PhD. So I decided I was going to stay. And that influenced me because the PhD was really about kind of stress in life generally. Um, And I was looking at people who were uh, taking, you know, like doing psychological therapies. And and those times they actually did things called T-groups. I mean, it wasn't people who had problems. It was people who were working uh, in caring roles like teachers, social workers, doctors, nurses, clerics, um, you know, priests who had to work with other people. And we used to do training. I did my PhD, you know, does this help people to talk about their feelings? So it started kind of there. And then, um, Later, I was doing a big study for a big multinational company, but as I was talking to a lot of the senior people, they were wondering why middle manager, uh, senior managers were refusing moves to different countries or different parts of the country, um, and they wanted to find out why. But as I was talking to them, they kept talking about stress. I don't need the stress on my family. I don't care if it earns me more money. I don't want to move where we're living. My kids are at school. My wife has a job. I don't need this aggravation, and that's where it started. So I did this big study, wrote a book about it, and then every occupation started to come to me—from mm-hmm. pilot, you know, uh, to uh, air traffic controllers, to uh, teachers. And unions were coming to me, and employers were coming to me, saying, "We got stress here." And this was before the recession. This was in the 1980s. Yeah. And then 90s, it started to get worse. And then we had the recession of the 80s, which made it worse. And then we had, um, I think the thing that really hit well-being big time was the financial crisis of 2008. Sure. Because people, so many people lost their job that all of a sudden companies were saying, it's not good enough to have mindfulness at lunch and bags and sushi at your desk and massages. <laughs> what we need to do is make this a much more strategic issue because- their concern about well-being was how do we retain the millennials and the z generation how okay. do we keep this okay this these generations how do we because they are not going to tolerate what their parents tolerated they had mm-hmm. a bad working environment they were going to go that ge- mm-hmm. this generation and i think that financial crisis of 2008 to 2015 i think was the 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 start the beginning of a movement toward mental well-being being now a strategic issue for organizations.
1: Okay, so so that was a tipping point, um, that financial crisis. Uh, Absolutely, and we, like, we're, a tipping. We're approaching point. A, we're approaching another one now, and I do want to ask you about you know how it's changed now. But um, but going back a little bit um, across your career, so you know you've dealt with employers and employees across all sectors. So you know, is there kind of a common, uh, a commonality in where you've hoped to inflict change throughout your career? Like, obviously, it's, you know, it's stress and relieving stress in the workplace, but has there been something that's kept motivating you and driving you as as your career has grown?
2: I think the, the driver is I didn't see much improvement. <laughs> you know, I saw it at the edges, marginal improvements, like, the use of EAPs was helpful. And I did an evaluation of all the EAPs in the UK in, oh, a dozen years ago, more than that, maybe, for the uh, health and safety executive. I saw that that was helping, that people had somebody to talk to, Mm -hmm. you know, an EAP from a provider. I saw um, stress management courses doing some good, but still the levels of mental ill health were very high. and, And now... In almost every developed country in the world now, between fifty and sixty percent of all their long-term sickness absence is for the common mental disorders of anxiety, depression, and stress. Yeah, and I think that what I thought was so. What are the factor? Well, we I'd done a lot of research. I knew some of the factor. I knew the factors, not some of them, all of them. Right, and they were obviously different for one company than another company, and and one sector than another sector but the repeated things that we did see and need to tackle even now is for example the role of the line manager mm-hmm. from shop floor to top floor we have we we do something funny in the workplace we recruit and promote people to manager roles based on their technical skills not their people skills yeah and that's a real big fault we have yeah. in particularly now particularly From the time of the financial crisis in 2008 to now, where we have a war in Ukraine, we have uh, a cost of living crisis, an energy crisis, a recession coming, and we're having multiple recessions now. So more than ever before, we need people managers people who have the social interpersonal skills, the EQ, the emotional intelligence, to understand when employees have unmanageable workloads, when they're showing symptoms of stress and mental ill health, when they have um, multiple problems in their personal life, Mm -hmm. in, Mm -hmm. in a scenario where most families are now two earner families, both people working, working long hours. So I think the driver for me is, Let's get to the bottom of this. Let's deal with it, not just as a training course, but let's go beyond that. Let's let's help people. Let's provide them a safety net. And that's the stuff that we are getting EAPs. And we have EAP. People have that kind. They're providing individual support. But what we have to do is try to prevent people getting sick in the first place. Mm-hmm. And that's where we get the, the, the issue of the line manager in. And, boards being held accountable for the health and well-being of their employees. By the way, they do have a legal obligation. Every employee in every developed country has a legal right um, to, has a legal obligation to ensure that employees' health and well-being is protected. That's certainly in the UK and every EU country. That's such an important thing for
1: employees to know, right, that they have that, right, that they can demand those things when they get hired or when, when they're in the job, because I think it happens a lot that um, there is still this stigma of, you know, employees not wanting to disclose certain things because, you know, I'm going to be seen as weak because I'm too stressed or I can't manage and their manager doesn't tolerate it. But I think it's it's key that, that you you mentioned that twice as as being that, that principal factor and it's line managers who themselves by the way have a lot of stress on their hands you know like especially middle managers who have to both you know respond to their own workload and then people manage like you said and you're absolutely right people progress you know uh, along the the company ladder and you know they progress because of their skills right but rarely is there that emphasis into will this person be a good manager, right? Because it's half the job—not um, only yeah. you know doing your skills for the company, but like half your job is is to manage the rest of your team. So how do you how do you train people? Because that's not an easy thing to learn, right? Like you can learn, you can take a course on Excel or software or you know whatever skill you need um, in your company. But how do you train people to have more? EQ emotional intelligence
2: Jorge I think we have two issues so if I was an HR director I'd, I'd say the following I'd say okay we have the managers we currently have all right so let's let's deal with that issue first HR tends to know where the bodies lie HR will know Jorge isn't very good at managing people he's technically very good but not really good at, at people management Janet is really good has the natural skills. We know who they are, and so what HR has to do is audit, in a sense, all their managers all the way from the bottom all the way up to board and say, all right, we have 40% of our line managers who have, they have the great technical skills, but they have naturally the people skills, nothing to do. We don't have to deal with them. Hmm. They're good at what they do. Hmm. 40% are technically very good, not very good at people skills, but are trainable. All right. So now we have to find EQ training, social skill development training that will help them and encourage them and give them an understanding of how their behavior affects other people. All right? And that's yeah. it. In the, in the old days, I was talking about T groups, which I did my PhD on, was a vehicle, a training course, which wasn't <laughs> normal training, like this is what you should do, tick the box. It was group, almost like group psychotherapy, where people told you, the individual, how they perceived your behavior in that group. Boy, oh boy, was that powerful. (sighs) Sure. Okay. That happened in the 1970s and 1980s. Then it disappeared and it shouldn't have because we need it more than ever now, Mm -hmm. that kind of training. Mm -hmm. But the other issue is you don't have 20% who shouldn't be anywhere near people So those people are technically good and we have to find a role for people who are technically good, but that they don't have, that they can earn money being technically good, but don't have to go up the pyramidal system of going into management role. We have to find a way to deal with that. And we haven't done that yet. Our, our, our organizations are pyramidal and people Mm -hmm. climb greasy Mm -hmm. poles Mm -hmm. to get to the top. Mm -hmm. And that's the way they get status and more money. Okay. So that's dealing with the ones we have. Now, the second stage, if I'm an HR director, is in recruiting people and promoting them in the future, here's what we're going to do. We're going to have parity between their people skills and their technical skills. If we have to do an assessment center to ensure that we find out what this person's really like in terms of a managerial role, then that's what we have to do. So the future will be the way we recruit people ensuring there's parity between both. And you can do that. You can use psychometric testing. You can do um, assessments which involve people, samplings, behavior sampling, for example, if you're going to, you have to measure their, in some way, get the diagnosis of their people skills. Uh, Because you can't do it just based, for example, on references. Because say you're a lousy line manager with some company and you apply for another job. They want to get rid of you. They're going to say, this guy's great. He's really good at his job. But they won't say he's really bad at managing people. So we have to find the, the psychometrics and other ways of identifying people's people skills. And we can do that. That's not complicated.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. because, I mean, you could also integrate it as part of the, the interview and make sure it's there, you know, and make sure you assess it when you're assessing candidates properly. But then you're right. I mean, some people kind of land on the job of managers and managers of a large team of people, and yet they don't have the people skills. So what what to do then? So I think it's really refreshing to hear you say all that, but also comforting to, to note that it can be done, that you can measure it and you can do it. Um, and it has benefits across the organization. Um, so, so I mean that's one big factor, and um, I realize like we we've we haven't mentioned the pandemic, right? And and all the effects of that, the indirect effects of changing how the workplace is even seen, you know, hybrid working and remote working and all that. You know how how have you in all of your years of experience? How has the last two years been? Like, obviously, for me, it's I can say it's obvious because, you know, it's a pandemic that hadn't happened in 100 years. But, you know, how have you seen it, you know, really change um, how workplace well-being is considered and, you know, all of the factors that come into play? You know, what has been the effect?
2: I I think we've all seen it, haven't we, Jorge? I mean, this has been profound. It's been a total reset. Had this pandemic started in March of 2020 and lasted a few months, probably wouldn't have had the impact it's had. Two years and still going in a way, uh, it it has kind of reset everything. First of all, employers before the pandemic didn't really, they um, they had flexible working options, but really didn't encourage people to take them. And they really wanted people to stay in the office we know that. Well first of all, they wanted their troops all there and they wanted to be able to call meetings when they wanted to call meetings etc. All of a sudden, we're forced for 2 years to work primarily from home. Although people didn't want to ever work pre-covid 100% from home. What they wanted was flexible working. They've been wanting that for a decade before the pandemic hit. This reset it. It works. It saves the organization money. Instead of having four floors in London, they only need two floors or one floor of of, of leasing. Yeah. Um, there's 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 no downside of a one and a half hour commute each way to work in London, Manchester, Glasgow, Paris, New York. So it, it's in everybody's interest. This then that that also focused in on how we manage people because now how do we manage? Therefore, the line managers become important. Because how do you manage people? Some are going to be in an office. Some are going to be at home. How do you team build in the context of hybrid working? So that brought that to the fore. That accelerated the trend to look at the, the line manager. And then uh, they started to look at metrics because they start worrying about if more and more people are working substantially from home than they ever did before, you know, what's how is this affecting productivity? So now they're trying to look at the metrics So first of all, are we retaining our people in this dynamic scenario? So let's look at labor turnover. uh, Mental health is the big issue. More and more people are suffering from it. So how are we going to deal with that as an issue? In the old days, pre-COVID, people would say the most valuable resource we have is our human resource. Every manager in the world would say that. Oh, the people are really important. But they didn't action it that much. You know, they, 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 it was kind of a soft touch. You know, it, it's fuzzy thing. You should say that. Right. But now they mean it because they can't afford to lose. We're so mean and lean in, 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 in labor terms. We can't get the, the talent we need. You want to retain them, you better create the right culture. And I think that's the dynamic that, that the pandemic has created. It accelerated what we should have been doing a, de- a decade ago. Yeah,
1: yeah. Um, Thank you. Thank you so much, Carrie, for that. Um, And you're yeah, of course, you're absolutely right. You've known this for a while. um, And you know, you're very in tune with it. But it's true that it seems to have hit the mainstream, right? And you know, these terms of the great resignation, making headlines in the New York Times and the Washington Post and all of those. Have you seen those before the pandemic, those type of headlines, even in the financial crisis of 2008?
2: Well, you, you, not really. We didn't see it in the financial crisis as much. And I'll tell you why we didn't, is the pandemic was unique in the sense that it left us alone, mm-hmm. kind of socially isolated for nearly two years. So many times we were working 100% from home, mm-hmm. which we didn't. people didn't want, and they were missing other people. And we can see that from the Silver Cloud report, that that had an impact you know i feel a bit lonely and and uh, socially unconnected and, and all the rest of it but think about 2 years of having a lot of reflection time time to think do i really like my job you know i could die from this pan- this virus i could die that forces you to think about your life yes is this the job is this the relationship i want to be in yeah. is this the job i want to mm-hmm. be in is this the company I want to be in? Mm-hmm. You know, and you, I think the great resignation came from people, from different groups of people. One, a, a, a person who says, I don't really enjoy what I'm doing or why don't I want to go back into it? Therefore, I'm going to do something different. And for young people to say something like, um, you know, I, you know, I don't, I, I'm not going to do what my parents did they tolerated a lousy work environment mm-hmm. i don't want mm-hmm. that these people remember the z generation and the millennials the young millennials don't have money to buy a house yeah they don't have the commitments their parents had and they can free wheel and say you know what i got talent they're better well they're better educated yeah. they have better skills skills are in demand yeah. they can sell their skills anywhere so an employer has a real problem here. You want to retain that person? You better create the right culture. And I don't mean beanbags. I mean value them, trust them. Yeah. And they will they will deliver for you, but they won't tolerate um command and control, seven twenty-four. Look at the quiet quitting
1: yeah.
2: uh yeah. uh scenario yeah. that's taking place. Yeah, that's another
1: one. Mm-hmm. They
2: they won't do that, and therefore there is a big difference. It's not just the older people and senior people resigning or mid-career who don't like their job. It's young people saying, I don't want to work in this organization. I don't like it. And yeah. Okay. It's a good brand I'm working for. You know, it's got the right initials, but guess what? They won't let me work flexibly. They are a command and control culture. They want to me to work 80 hour weeks. No way. No way. Mm -hmm.
1: You mentioned um, Silver SilverCloud's um, research, and you know, from that research, we, we published this um, white paper, this new white paper called Making Mental Health Top of the Agenda, which is a deep dive into that, you know, that survey that we did. Um, what, from, from that survey of 1,000 employees and 500 employers, what do you consider to be some of the most interesting findings from the report, given what you knew already?
2: Okay, I think one of the factors in it that I I mean, we know that mental health, I found that obviously over 50% of people's suffering from some anxiety and depression as a result, not only the pandemic, but the cost of living crisis, the impending recession, and all of that. That I knew, and we know financial well-being is big time because of cost of living. So that stuff I understood. Mm-hmm. What I, I found in the report that was good and worrying the same time worrying because only a third of employers were investing in mental well-being at work which is not good news that's the bad news and roughly the same number of employees said that their employer wasn't doing was not doing very much so about a third of them were saying you know they they weren't doing what they what i'd like them to do Mm -hmm. and and in creating the right kind of culture the good news i think was where the companies who did it, the third that did invest, you know, over 50% of them said, hey, it affected my bottom line pretty directly. I mean, they found 55% uh, of employers said there was an increase in staff productivity. 40% said that they increased their profitability. And a huge number of them said it also reduced their um, uh, sickness absence rates. So, the good news, if they do something, the employers are saying, because the the study that Silver Cloud did was with 500 employers and 1,000 employees. And it's good to hear the employer saying, guess what? It hits my bottom line. Listen, if it didn't hit the bottom line, you know, then that would be a cause of concern. Sure. You know, why invest the money? You know, uh, you might invest the money because on the one hand it might help the mental health of employees but if it helps the mental health of employees it's going to affect their performance yeah. and their and their productivity and guess what it does from this th- this report and so uh, we need more of that you need we need more employers to understand this is not a soft topic this is not soft this is heavy but the OECD found a few years ago in the UK they went to every one of the OECD members and they looked at their mental health rates and they found in the UK that mental ill health was costing the UK economy four percent of GDP every year. Oh. Now, Criminy, if we had only half of that in the in, in the UK, we'd be we'd be operating at 2%. We would kill to be having GDP at two percent, yeah. we're nowhere near that. So, it it's pretty powerful stuff. It's 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 a, it's a productivity issue as well, and performance issue as well as it is a health issue.
1: And so, you know, given given all those numbers, um, why do you think employers have been so slow to act until now? Well, not all, but you know the unfortunately the majority
2: i suspect part of it is generational in the sense that the good news i think is we're getting younger people getting into more senior roles who understand this yeah, they're getting exposed to this when they do their funny mbas when they you know when they develop as are as they're being educated there are still some dinosaurs out there in senior roles and that's a problem i mean you know we know of maybe one or two investment banks who are saying you you have to be in the office five days a week. I mean, I mean, that's just, I don't know. That's cloud cuckoo land. (laughs) They'll lose, they'll lose talent. Mm. Um, you can't do, you you know, we have people in some people in senior roles who don't understand that the investment like this report found that it will affect the productivity performance, profit, it will hit you. It will hit the bottom line indicators, but that requires investment, requires thinking about this kind of thing strategically. As we get younger, better educated, more socially skilled, EQ people at the top of organizations, and there are people like Bernard Looney of BP who suffered depression most of his life, talks about Mm -hmm. it. And he's the chief, chief executive of one of the biggest companies in the world. <laughs> mm-hmm. He says that we have to deal with this as an yeah. issue. We had Antonio Herorio, who was w- w- with Lloyd's Bank. He's now with elsewhere, but he talked about his depression. He was a the CEO there yeah, and de- dealt with it and felt this was important. Yeah. Uh, and to help, in other words, the health of employees is important. The healthier they are, whether it's mental health or physical health, the likely they're to perform better. Yes, and
1: and I, I'm I'm really glad you mentioned people in senior roles because I have seen that impact um, as well in person and at my own company and, and and just talking to people that if people in leadership positions, you know, express themselves about their own struggles and their mental health, then it stops being a separate employer versus employee issue. But like you know, in the end, everyone's an employee of the organization. And everyone's a, It'll human make a being difference and everyone can get stressed. Absolutely. So, if the CEO, if leaders at the C level, if your manager opens up as well and says, "Hey, no, I'm not okay. I need to take a day because I'm really stressed right now," you know, I think, I think it has a massive impact. It does. Um, and and like you said, it's just, you know, it's an impact on the organization at a productivity level. So, okay, so what are some some of the ways right now that employers can adapt and evolve current practices to help workers? How can they innovate and, you know, put this part of the strategy? Like, what kind of things can they do? Like, you know, any any things that can be generalized?
2: Um, okay, I think, number one, giving somebody on the board, whether it's a private sector company or a public sector body, somebody who's responsible for employee health and well-being. Right. Give them metrics to measure whether what good looks like in the well-being space. Mm-hmm. What's your culture like? What what represents a good culture? Well, certainly not labor turnover. If people are leaving in large numbers, that's not good. Job satisfaction levels, that's declining. That's not good. If you have stress-related ill health in terms of sickness, absence, and presenteeism, that's not good. So having the metrics to see whether what good looks like in your organization. Are we doing well? What's our sector like? What's what are we doing in that in that regard? And having the, somebody on the board who holds the organizational accountable, so then HR and occupational health can do something about it. That is, I think, really important to have the right structures in place. Because when we did that, when we uh, uh, were concerned about gender any in, uh, wage um, inequality, what did what happened? Governments in the EU in many countries in the EU said you have to report. The gender pay gap. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Guess what happened? That narrowed because the board had the Oh my God, it's embarrassing. The gender pay gap here is 25%. We'll have to report this this year. The stock shareholders are not going to like this. Exactly. Yeah. Right? Next year, oh, it's dropped to 20%. <laughs> Look how we improved. <laughs> now 18, 15 So we have to, the same thing would apply, therefore, to health and yeah. safety, in my view that boards have to deal with it. That That's the thing. And then make it a strategic issue. Make sure you have a director of health and well-being at the operational yeah. level, somebody who works for the HR director or the chief medical officer or whatever. Many companies now do, yeah. by the way, yeah. luckily. They, have, they really have that. And that person then helps to create the architecture, the well-being architecture, so that mental well-being becomes quite significant.
1: Yeah, yeah. no, that, that, that's great. And um, I mean, it's great that a lot of companies are starting to do it. And But like to report on it, to trans, transparently report on it if you're a public company, obviously to your shareholders, um, but if not, you know, to your employees and say, you know, the, the health and well-being has improved and that's a testament to everyone, right? Um, so yeah, I mean, those are a couple of key issues. Um, but also, you know, I'd be remiss if I didn't ask you, uh, being in a digital mental health company, how how do you see digital solutions making an impact? Um, you know, right now in in the current climate, um, how how do you see them benefiting organizations in general?
2: Well, I, I think listen, anything you can do, whether it's digital or non digital, you do. Right. That's part of a strategy. You figure out, hey, we can do that digitally, and we should, and we can do that eyeball to eyeball. And we should, because that requires a different scenario or for different people.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: Remember, that it when you're building an architecture, a well-being architecture, you use all the tools you have. Yeah. You, you have available, the yeah. good ones, the ones that work and deliver. And you uh, evaluate the effectiveness of all of them, because that's important. You know, I I looked at EAPs for the health and safety executive many years ago right? All the providers of it. And we found what worked and what didn't work and how it affected things and how it didn't. So we knew that it affected people's individually affected them Mm -hmm. in a positive Mm -hmm. way. However, it didn't necessarily change the organization. That required something different. In other words, it didn't change a command and control management style, for example, because you're dealing one-to-one with a person, with an individual. So you have to look at what's the impact of different technologies, whether they're digital or in, involved in human interaction in one form or another. Yeah,
1: yeah, exactly. I mean, you're right. It's a, it's a new tool, um, relatively new, right? But it, it's a tool that definitely complements, you know, what a, what an organization can provide. And you know, I think one of the key things is that it makes it often easy or easier to to measure, you know. You know, measure impact, measure um, symptoms, measure engagement—all of that. So it can it can be valuable in that regard too. Um, but you know, it's part of the wider strategy. You know, given all of this, Carrie, um, you know, I know you're still learning and discovering. So. I want to ask you, what would you want to know in the next few years? Like, Is there something that you'd like to learn in the next couple of years or discover or see even um, with regards to workplace well-being that has a massive impact? If you could choose one thing or a couple of things, um, what would it be?
2: Uh, I would like to see, I guess, senior people in organizations, whether private or public sector, out loud talking about these issues. Mm. I think we get more traction when people, when very senior people are open about their own life. Yeah. I'd like to see more of that because you know what? That will change a culture. Yeah. It has changed cultures in various organizations. The more open people are, that means they're prepared to and, and encouraging others to be open. Mm. And the more open we are, the more we're prepared to talk to our boss about our problems and the boss is able to listen and care and understand and, and change the nature of the psychological t- contract with that person in a way that helps them and helps them and their families, the better.
0: My special thanks to my guest, Sir Carrie Cooper, for joining me in conversation about well-being and the workplace. To hear more conversations focused on mental health and well-being, you can also listen back to previous episodes of CB Talks. Find us wherever you get your podcasts. If you enjoyed this episode or any other episode in the series, please rate and review CB Talks so we can help others discover it too. I'll see you next time.